Hello friends, my voice is very deep today, and that's because I'm back from a week off. Yes, last week I was adventuring around Big Bear and Ventura, hunting through thrift shops for horror movies on VHS and DVD, writing scary stories, staying up late to watch horror movies, and enjoying thunder and lightning for the first time in over a year. And I was reading a lot. One of the books I've been reading is the new collection of stories from author David Rose. We had David on the show early in the year to talk about Amden Bog, which I loved so much. Well, he has a new collection of haunting tales called The Scrolls of Sin, and it's diabolically horrifying. We have David on the show today to talk about his new works, as well as the idea of curses and cursed objects. We're also joined by Cody of the Living, who will help me dissect my latest story, which of course is coming up first. It's called Evil Drawn. But first, grab your headphones, turn off the lights, find a safe hiding space, and fall in to haunting season. Marcus had one goal in life, to create a piece of art that was too terrifying to look at, an image so frightening, so unsettling, that people had no choice but to avert their eyes. He fed the call of his creativity every night when it was most hungry. Around midnight when inspiration hit, he pulled out his pencils and started to form shapes on his sketch pad. Occasionally, these sessions of passion lasted until dawn, but more often than not, they petered out after an hour, and the results were always the same. Underwhelming. That was before he received the gift. By the light of day, Marcus was a postal worker here in Salem, which was more work than most would assume. 9 a.m. roundup for team meetings, 9.15 hit the sorting room to organize the deliveries for the day, and then it was out to drive, park, organize, and deliver. Drive, park, organize, and deliver. It wasn't particularly difficult work, but it was draining. On average, Marcus could clock about six miles of walking and lifting in a day, and because of this and a decent metabolism, he never had to worry much about diet and exercise. He was a lean, mean, mail-delivery machine with a proclivity for the dark and the wicked. Where the idea came from, he was unsure, but it started to form while living with his father in Brooklyn. See, Pops had taken every drug on the planet, and they ate him from the inside out. Marcus raised himself from the depths of deep Brooklyn, and as his father rotted away, lips curling back, hair like withered straw, eyes perpetually bloody, deep sores breaking into itchy black infections, Marcus escaped. There were few creative spaces in Brownsville, but Bushwick was a short bike ride away, and the public library there provided the space and peace to study, to learn, and to craft. Drawing had started as a way to avoid going home after classwork was finished, but it quickly became a necessity. Putting pencil to paper like this was like opening his veins and letting the sick pour out. The images were dark from the beginning, starting with zombies, teeth showing through cheekbones, brains slightly exposed, eyeballs falling out. They were cartoon illustrations, comical, fun. But as the months rolled on, his wrist and fingers found more nuanced flicks and twists. Marcus began to notice light, 
and how it hit people's faces from the desk lamps in the windowless section of the library. Hard, dramatic, with deep shadows. His new vision influenced his sketches, becoming more realistic, more gruesome. There came a point in his senior year of high school where Marcus outgrew the resources of the library. He had thumbed through every page of the occult section, looked at every dark painting in the art books, and still felt there was something untapped. It made him feel good that his drawings were unsettling some of the young moms at the library, but instead of avoiding that portion of the book stacks, they started to make scenes, jerking their children away and shrieking. When the librarian ran over, they apologized erroneously. I'm sorry. I'm really so sorry for shouting. I've just never been so disturbed in my life. There are children in this library, sir. You should be ashamed of yourself. And you, how could you allow such disgusting things to happen in your place of work? The library is a place for children, not witches and Satanists. The librarian was a pushover to whomever was making the most noise, and these young mommies certainly made noise. An army formed of little soldiers, one by one, causing a scene until the librarian was forced to make a judgment call. The neighborhood was changing and was now full of nice families who didn't want some weirdo guy scaring their children. On Marcus's last day in Bushwick, the mommy army brought some of their men to make sure the message stuck. They mutilated his bike beyond repair and left his body full of bruises. It was a long walk home. The next few months were hard. The apartment was nothing more than a nest for his rat father. Teeth rotted sharp, face peeling, breath wheezing. Even with the windows open, it smelled of chemicals, bile, and mold. The constant flow of users coming to buy a quick fix were endless inspiration for Marcus, and now that he knew what to do with them, he didn't mind it so much. He only got glimpses from his bedroom door, but the rot sat like trauma in his mind, and without the time to sit and stare at a subject, as he did in the library, more was left to the imagination. His drawings were evolving into the abstract, heads held up by wisps of hair, hands connected by chains to loose shirt sleeves, faces filled with spiked rows of teeth and round glowing eyes, all drawn to the sounds of pops arguing with the lamp or the toaster about things Marcus would never see for fear of rotting alive himself. Despite his hardships, Marcus graduated high school that spring. He walked alone from his parentless graduation and arrived home to find that he was now on his own. Pops had found Marcus's drawings during what could only be assumed to be a bad trip and hanged himself with the shower curtain after gouging out his eyeballs with dirty spoons crusted with Chinese food. He hung, knees an inch from the ground, like a blue swollen jack-o'-lantern atop a scarecrow with no stuffing, clothes hanging loose on his skeletal, drug-worn body. Marcus wasn't surprised, just disturbed and disappointed. Drugs and demons aside, Pops deserved better. Marcus untwirled the mold and rust-stained curtain from his father's neck and did his best to lower the body gracefully to the floor. Pops' shell was small, but surprisingly heavy. 
Grabbing under the armpits, Marcus leaned back heavily and dragged the body into the hallway. He tried to look anywhere but down, however, the moment he finally gave in to the temptation, he was transfixed. Once glazed with a euphoric haze, the eyes of his father were nothing more than fleshy pits and tendrils, a sight far more impactful in person than with graphite. He allowed his eyes to explore the tragedy for a few moments before placing his father's right arm across the empty pits, perhaps to protect them from the rats and the roaches, and sauntered into his bedroom to make a plan. Marcus didn't cry. He just sat on his bed, staring at the door. A few feet away, amidst the mess of dark art strewn across the desk, was a shoebox full of cash and a note with two words on it. Free yourself. $75,000 in cash was enough to disappear. Marcus bought a used car, moved to Salem into a modest studio apartment, and got his job at the post office. He thought about going to art school, but couldn't see a future where spending $75K that quickly would pay off. So he kept at it, using the new environment, the witchy history, and the secrets of his past as fuel to keep working towards the ultimate goal of unviewable art. Things had been uneventful until this afternoon, when Marcus unlocked the last blue postal box of the day to reveal a package wrapped in black paper with no visible markings on it. Unsure of what to do, he placed it on the floor of the mail truck near the front seat and retrieved it after his final hour of sorting. The package was almost invisible, sitting on the dark wood of the dining table, but it was unmistakably present. There was an energy about it, an almost imperceptible vibration that Marcus felt the moment he saw it, as if the package was beckoning him to see what lay inside. Opening someone else's mail is a federal offense, but this didn't appear to be mail. From whom was anyone's guess, but there was no doubt it was a gift intended for the postal worker who frequented the box. A brief thought of explosives crossed his mind, but aside from the mean mommies in Brooklyn almost two years ago, Marcus never met anybody he didn't get along with. People loved getting the mail, and being a postal worker meant people loved him too. Flicking open his pocket knife, he loosed the paper, careful not to tear it, and with his heart pumping, sweat forming on his upper lip, he turned it inside out to see a message written for him. A triangle with three foreign-looking words written one on each corner. And in the middle, in beautiful cursive writing, was free yourself. Impossible. Pops was dead. The message he left seen only by Marcus that night before calling the police. And who? His lip began to quiver. The images of Pops from that night had been buried deep, but they were clawing through the soil of his mind now, hungry for his brain. Pushing the wrapping paper aside, Marcus fumbled for the box and pulled out a thick black candle. What is this? He thought. Some sort of late funeral gift? The tears began to flow freely, mixing with his sweat as he held the candle in his lap. When did it get so hot in here? He ran his fingers along the candle's body, searching for any more clues that he could find. The salty water from his eyes pounded down on the wax and a word inscribed on the side lit up with a soft glow. 
Lacrimé. Marcus wiped his face with the palm of his hand, unsure of what he was seeing, but before he could think too much, his hand lit up another word upon contact. Sudor. He looked at the triangle on the paper. The last word. Sanguis. What did this mean? Pulling the wrapping to the center of the table, Marcus clunked down the candle in the middle of the triangle and scrambled to the junk drawer to find the matches. Fire, of course. A candle needs a flame. They've got to be in here somewhere. He ripped the drawer from the cabinet and dumped the chattel with a cacophony of hard, small things hitting the countertop, pushing aside beer bottle caps and rubber bands, dollar store screwdrivers and Ikea hex keys, until he finally found the battered box of the matches he took from the Mexican place the night he rolled into town. Marcus slid the box open to reveal two small wooden matches and took a deep breath in. Still sweating, the room felt like an inferno. What would happen when he lit the candle? Why was he scared? He took his time, sitting back in his seat, and made sure to light the first match properly, without breaking it, and rested the flame in the top of the candle. Nothing. He held it there until it burnt his finger, but the wick didn't light. What kind of candle doesn't light? Marcus reached for the second match and struck it in the same way, holding the flame against the wick, but to no avail. The room was throbbing like a headache. The candle wanted something, but what? Marcus tried to make sense of it. The first word lit up from his tears, and the second, his sweat. Sweat. Tears. The truth dawned on him as he reached for his fine tip pencil and the sharpener, twisting the wood and graphite into a needlepoint. Marcus placed the blunt end against the table, held fast by his left fist, and pushed his right palm until the skin punctured and the blood spilled out. And then he reached for the candle. On contact, a tall flame burst from the wax like a cheap firecracker. The room was lit with darkness and Marcus's eyes rolled back into his skull as he began to draw. His hand jerked violently as if taken by something else. Psychedelic visions kaleidoscoped endlessly through his consciousness as his body was used to create the monstrosity. In the morning, Marcus woke with a purulent quarter stigmata and a messy kitchen. The candle, despite being quite large last night, had burnt to the bottom, leaving black hard wax over half the dining table. But none of that mattered because before him was his drawing, face down with just a hint of a shape showing through the back of the paper. Marcus knew he couldn't look at it, but he had to know. Was this the one? After some deliberation, he decided to pack it in his satchel and bring it to work. It didn't seem safe to leave the drawing alone. On the way in, he saw a veteran on the street corner asking for money. Marcus offered him $20 cash if he'd look at the drawing. The man took one petrified look, pushed both his fists into his eyes, and walked into traffic where a semi painted the road red with him like a wet brush. Marcus got lost in the remaining blocks to work and ended up at a park, staring into nothingness, hands shaking. 
watery eyes. That blood was on his hands. He had unleashed the most wicked of images, and there was no telling what pain it would bring. The sun rose and fell by the time cool moonlight shivered up his spine. Marcus had balanced himself, letting the accident, and he was sure it was an accident, drift away into a frozen block of memory and helpful reasoning. The man was most likely mentally unstable. He was too weak to see the image. But what would happen to someone of sound mind? Someone like an art critic? After waiting for the Abstractia Gallery to open, Marcus talked the owner into taking a look. He warned the man of his goal and how he believed he had achieved it. This was Salem, after all, so how could the man resist? The critic asked if he could take it upstairs to review privately. He returned promptly, via the sidewalk. His face flattened as bits of skull and gray matter stippled the ankles of pedestrians. The drawing floated down slowly from the second-story window. Marcus could feel it pulsating from where he stood inside. It wanted more. And it was quickly picked up by a woman who had run to the scene of the suicide. She smashed her head through the plate glass window, grasping at the shards and shoving them into her eyes until her body stopped. Marcus could see the picture, drawing side up on the pavement, tempting another meal. It had to be sheathed before anything else could happen. Moving sideways, Marcus used his peripheral vision to navigate to the paper, retrieved it with his eyes closed, and ran home. Marcus tried ripping, tried flushing, tried laying the paper across four-lit stovetop burners, but nothing could destroy the evil he had unleashed. He thought about burying it, about sealing it in the walls of the house, but he knew he'd hear it calling if it wasn't put to use. Distraught, he shoved it back in his satchel next to his book on loan and paused, closing his eyes as a dark splinter of a smile cracked across his lips. He knew what he had to do. Marcus grabbed his keys. They called it the Mass Mommy Suicide, and legend has it that behind a particular shelf of occult books lies a sealed-off wing where the women used to meet to talk about improving the neighborhood. The image still hangs over the blood-stained basement floor of the Bushwick branch of the Brooklyn Public Library, threatening to take all who enter there. Hey friends, do you want to write scary stories like me, but you don't know where to start? Well, let me tell you about a course I took online called Nightmare Fuel, which is presented by Autocrit, our sponsor, guiding you through everything you need to know to develop and create amazing tales packed with fear and terror. Nightmare Fuel is an absolute horror writing survival guide with a healthy measure of self-study, workbooks, videos, and intensive live virtual classrooms. In addition to the impressive breadth of knowledge from the teachers themselves, the course also features exclusive and meaningful guidance from Rain Hall, gothic horror author and creator of the Writer's Craft Guidebook series. Okay, so you've got your money's worth right there, but let me tell you about the parts where I really benefited, and that's the private member community and the editing software. 
The Autocrit software is like hiring a great therapist. It's there to guide you towards making good choices in your writing, but you still do the work yourself and make your own decisions. The software can run hundreds of reports that help you critique your own writing, pacing, and repetition, and it has taken my writing to a whole new level. Now, I made friends during the class, and we were able to connect, to chat, share our work, and get feedback from each other without sharing personal information because of the private Autocrit network, which for me is like, if you could take my favorite social media platform and remove everyone who's not interested in what I like. I can't tell you enough how valuable this class has been for me, and they don't just do horror, they have sci-fi and fantasy courses as well. So if you're looking to get started in writing, or you just want to take the next step to get better, check out hauntingseasonpod.com autocrit. The link is down below. Good evening world and welcome to Haunting Season. Joining me today is my occasional co-host and very good friend of the show, Cody of The Living. Hey, Cody. Hello, Joshua. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Superb. (laughs) That's great. And as I mentioned in the opening, we have access to the dark mind behind the Scrolls of Sin. Author David Rose is on the show. Hey, David. Hey, guys. It's good to be with you again. Yeah. How have you been? It's been five months since we last spoke. Seems like you've been busy writing. Yeah, yeah. Got a really exciting email the other day that a Lovecraftian project of mine just got picked up by a press in Australia. So doing some edits now on that. That's awesome. I feel like cosmic horror is making a huge comeback recently. Yeah, I I would say I was actually just up in Rhode Island for the first time, by the way, to see, you know, Providence and go see Lovecraft's grave and some of these sites, and I went up there for the Lovecraft Film Festival. We only got to do a part of it because of the weather, but um, it's interesting to be around such like-minded folks. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's been the great thing about this podcast evolving, and, and now I'm on TikTok. <laughs> Just like finding like-minded people, I feel like it's easier than ever. It's not just only at the conferences now. Mm-hmm. So, Josh, you said, what, cos- cosmic horror? Yeah, cosmic horror. I mean, that's what I think when I think Lovecraftian is uh, like Thulu and just like things kind of ripping open and becoming other things, you know, like the thing. Okay, I gotcha. Color Out of Space. That was a big hit for me when I watched that movie a little while ago. I haven't read that actual story. That's possibly my favorite story by Lovecraft. Yeah, that's that's a real hard hitter. The Nick Cage one is very, it's like the best of low budget horror because they use CGI a bit and you, you can tell they don't have like Marvel money, mm-hmm. but they right. do it in a really beautiful way that you know it's kind of illustrated on the screen a little bit, but it, you just accept it because it's so pretty. And then of course it becomes just awful. <laughs> For someone who's not really familiar with Lovecraft, what do you have any like certain like recommendations as far as literature goes and also uh, possible movies? Well, I would definitely say the Nick Cage Color Out of Space because I can't stop talking about it. Call of Cthulhu is, I think, one of his more well-known. And then there's the HBO show Lovecraft Country, which takes kind of the history of black America, or black people in America, and merges it with uh, Lovecraft stories. And it's really, they do a really beautiful beautiful job and it's absolutely horrifying like so much so that my wife and I we can't watch it while we're eating dinner yeah there's a movie that came out in the 90s I believe it was just called Necronomicon there's sort of a frame story about I believe I believe it's like Lovecraft himself the character going into this old library I don't know if you guys ever saw the old 70s cartoon uh, heavy metal Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Classic. You know how there's that frame story uh, of the the father-daughter? Well, it's similar to that, and then there's all these four or five stories within it. Same structure, essentially, for Necronomicon. I remember seeing that as a teenager, and it was... I think it might have been my first actual exposure 
to the Lovecraftian, and I just remember being thoroughly grossed out and horrified as far as like like this is this is a bleak way to look at the world. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's something about it that has that has you come back. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it stands the test of time. So your new book, uh, which I was reading this morning, is called The Scrolls of Sin. Can you give us an overview of that one? Yeah. So so you know, if you're going to write something Lovecraftian, you essentially write it in this world, uh, you know, taking place in Boston or, or elsewhere. Um, the Scrolls of Sin, or, or a lot of just the dark fantasy I do, is uh, or horror fantasy, I suppose, it, it, it's, uh, it's horror, but it takes place in, a, in another world. That is just something that I'm just such a fan of as a reader. I, I really, I couldn't help myself but, but try to make multiple contributions. And um, it's, it's funny because I'm not sure there's a very consolidated market for horror fantasy in 2021. It seems like people like really, really love horror in this world, you know, Stephen King, etc. Or people really, really love just fantasy. I mean, they want they want people riding dragons and stuff. But the people, the folks who really like fantasy, I'm not convinced that they really love horror. And I'm not entirely convinced people who love horror like reading about fantastical realms. So there's this sort of strange overlay that exists in, in horror fantasy. And and there are there are fans, there are readers, there are writers. And uh, I, I'm among that, uh, I, I tend that lowly vineyard and I do so with pride. That brings up two things for me. So I know Stephen King is based in, you know, mostly Maine, but a, a world that we're familiar with. But it has been said that his universe that he's built, like the, the paranormal side of it is all one universe. When you write a collection of stories like this, is it is that the world and then you step away from it? Or is this the same universe as Amden Bog? It's it's the same universe. Yep. It's uh the, the world is called Mulgara. Started crafting that about a decade ago uh, essentially is just just daydreaming that became so complex that I had to start writing it down to remember it, it was a fun recreational exercise that ended up providing a foundation for world building that made uh, writing the actual horror fantasy stories and novelettes not necessarily easy but extremely fun because there was essentially a reality there already Having some of those constraints is actually very good for a fantasy writer, because I, I believe it, it, it allows for more uh, convincing stories. So do you keep like a Bible or a thesaurus of your own world? How do you track all of the like the rules of the universe that you're writing in? Horribly scribbled maps. <laughs> um Almost equally is is uh, confusing timelines uh, to anyone looking at it other than me. It's it's almost it's almost encrypted and yeah and just a few files as far as you know landmarks of, uh, of cities and and what prominent families may live there and compared to another place and some of it pre-existed a story so I would pull from it to flesh out a story and other times these details would emerge in the creation of a story and I would have to plug these details into the master file. At this point it's it's pretty hefty. It's it's a big file. <laughs> Do you plan on like releasing some sort of encyclopedia? Well, no, it's funny that you asked that Cody because some of the criticism that Amden Bog received cuz you know Scrolls of Sin is is brand new. Some of the criticism for Amden Bog is that people would really have loved if there would have been a map the way that you you know we've come to expect uh, ever since essentially Lord of the Rings. First of all, I completely understand why somebody would want that. I, I mean, we all who doesn't love the Middle Earth map, you know. But there is a school of thought as far as people who oppose the map 
idea, me being one of them, is that you would like for your world to stand on its own two feet, so to speak, to where without a map, it can create, if done correctly, at least this is the argument, the idea that this book you're reading is essentially, you know, a portal. You're looking into a world and a people and a culture and activities that exist. Ideally, a map would uh, would be superfluous. So something like an encyclopedia or something like that, I, I almost feel like it kind of unweaves the rainbow a little. So that kind of brings me to my first real question. I was reading The Leaf of the Palm, which is the second story in the collection, and it begins with an ambush on a young man's carriage by a large savage tribesmen who are then attacked by wild hyenas. And there's a lot of chaos there, but throughout it, you're able to help the reader track the main character while so much is happening around them in a short amount of time. Was that scene difficult to write or scenes like that difficult to write? Or is it because you have all of this stuff mapped out ahead of time? It just kind of flows. Wow, that's that's a question that I uh, kind of like put me on my heels. It it wasn't it wasn't hard to write, but I I was definitely aware from the beginning that it, that it was what we might call action packed, and uh, action scenes can be difficult to write because you know there's so many hilarious versions of like too much description or, or uh, bogging people down or it going too quickly. And so I, I would say what I had focused on uh, in the first few pages of the Leaf of the Palm was to try to convey a swift-moving, chaotic scene, but to allow it to be uh, followable. Yeah, and it's cool that you read that, that you started on that one. That's actually one of my favorite ones. My friend Dana, she did the interior design for Scrolls of Sin, the, the interior images, and uh, she said that was her favorite story. Oh, that's awesome. I love how dark and spooky those images are throughout the book. Well, I'll definitely let her know. Yeah, please do. In April, we talked about your service in the military. Does that weigh into writing scenes that are chaotic and include battle like that? Depending on the scene, the, the scene in, in uh, that we're referring to in uh, The Leaf of the Palm is the type of melee, if you will, that is not necessarily military by nature. Mm-hmm. But there are, uh, there are other stories throughout the collection that are uh, distinctly military in nature. And yeah, it definitely pulled from uh, personal experience. To, you know, to flesh it out and to also think of like maybe the psychology that, that depending on the perspective of the character, it's a very different scene to write if the sympathetic character is winning or losing, right? Speaking of the images to the cover and the title itself, uh, Scrolls of Sin, and then the image on the cover for listeners is this hard lit bald figure in a cloak holding a scroll against a stone wall archway. Both of them have a little bit of like a Clive Barker feel to me. I don't know if that's just because I've recently been reading Clive Barker, but has his work inspired you at all or if not what other writers inspire you in your writing well not so much clive barker but i I think we're tracking something similar because i wanted to revisit the covers from uh the pulp horror era of like the late 70s early 80s if you go back and you look at a lot of the uh covers at the time that's where I, I wanted to model the uh, the design for that. And I know that, that he had some stuff in that vein, and he is referred to quite a bit by um, the writers of that age. But as far as the writers that have influenced me, getting back to the sort of marginalized horror fantasy crowd, uh, it, it would, without a doubt, would be Brian McNaughton. We, we had all spoken about him on the last podcast. He wrote uh, a marvelous collection called The Throne of Bones, and uh, it, it was just so impacting on my, my life creatively and otherwise that <laughs> I would be lying if I, if I said anything different than the, the Scrolls of Sin is sort of my attempt to um, 
pay homage to to Brian McNaughton and and the Throne of Bones and um, the, the structure, some of some of the theme, some of just the visualization. So very very big influence on this piece. You were talking about this the horror like fans of horror may not be into fantasy, whereas also like the, like the merger. Why do you think that? Because I like I'm not really into fantasy all that much. I could, but maybe I just never really gave it, you know, much of a a, a try or anything like that. But yeah, I I wonder why you think that people that are big fans of fantasy aren't into horror, and the horror isn't really into fantasy. You know, it's sort of like why some people are super into Star Trek, and then some, but but then they don't like Star Wars, or or uh, there's this or a larger dichotomy is people who love things like the Lord of the Rings, but don't like space opera, you know, to somebody who's really pragmatic, some accountant with no imagination, it probably all looks silly and fantastic, but, but people like us who who really enjoy these things, it's, uh, you know, we have our own camps. I have attended enough horror writers shindigs and just sort of seen what uh, people like to write what what's commercially successful what what big reviewers enjoy reading and reviewing and posting and um it is almost i would say 98 percent this this world this world fiction so i'm reading a, a a book right now called it's called the wonder book by jeff vandermeer it has got to be the coolest book on promoting the imagination and creative writing like it's an it's it, it's not doing the book service to say it's like a, 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 a book on writing it's it's so much more than that it's it's a really cool book and there's a quote in there and i'm of course going to butcher it but it says something that that fantasy enjoys probable impossibilities and sci-fi enjoys improbable possibilities and that actually gets back to like aristotle's poetics as far as, far as distinctions and and um in storytelling, and I think there might be something there, which uh, we could probably spend an hour trying to deconstruct. But th- there, there is just something. There, there is just some sort of impulse in the what you might call the mainstream horror crowd that enjoys work that that it takes place in this world. Whereas I think fantasists, me being one of them, are far more into uh, escapist fiction, for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, I I also think an element of it too is I'm not a great reader. It takes me a long time. My my wife and I will sit in bed at night and she'll read like 10 chapters the amount of time it takes me to read a chapter because I'm dwelling on every single word and I'm reading it at the pace that I would read it out loud if I were performing it. And maybe that has a little bit to do with like my my form of storytelling, but that just helps me really take in the story and be able to focus on on what's happening and not kind of blaze through it. And for that reason, stories like Tolkien wrote, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit are a little bit harder for me to track because there is so much extra description going into the the land and the the types of creatures and everything because it's so far outside of our realm. I tend to stick to horror and and books that take place in our world because it's just it's an easier just like pick up the book and go. You know, it's it's less work. And I've also grown up being more of a movie person and reading is something I came to in later in life. And so that's a skill that I, I plan to continue to work on. And with a movie, I can watch fantasy and it's, uh, you know, you're soaking it all in. I'm just ranting at this point, but I saw the the new Marvel movie, The Shang-Chi, and it has so much fantasy elements in it. But because it's visual, I can soak it all in. But if it was in a book, I'd, I'd probably struggle a little bit to to track it all. I think people who, whether it be high fantasy or dark fantasy or horror fantasy, I think that one of the reasons they buy those books is they 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 want to 
go walk around in that other world where one thing that and this is something i really admire about the horror community is they're very very nuts and bolts about like psychology they want the psychological journey yeah it's a lot about the mental journey and it's also something we talked about in in the horror writing class uh, we, we were talking about right before our sponsor autocrit something i learned in that class is to do your homework when it comes to horror and how people get hurt because horror lovers will call bullshit if, uh, you know, someone gets shot with an arrow through their calf and then is walking around a scene later, they want to know the limp is there. They want to know what damage happened to the calf muscles. Yeah, definitely. So in my story this week, I talked about the idea of the cursed image, a drawing so evil that all who look at it end up dead by their own hands. The story was inspired by the drawing that I got in the mail from Edgar Olvera. We have a link in the show notes. But the idea of a cursed item is not original. We have cursed dolls like Annabelle and Robert. There are cursed paintings. I wrote a story about a cursed petrified forest in Utah. I love the idea of cursed objects and curses, which brings us to our one big question of the day. But first, we have a word from our sponsor. Memento Mori is the premier oddities and curiosities shop located in Los Angeles. Visit us at 1507 Wilcox Avenue at Sunset Boulevard in the heart of Hollywood, Fridays through Sundays, 11 to 6 p.m. Or shop online at www.mementomori-la.com. You had mentioned one to uh, talk about Evil Drawn, my, my story from this week. Yes, yes. I, uh, dude, seriously impressed, man. I, um, first of all, to do a story in a, in a video medium like that, was that fun? Was that nerve wracking? Like, like, what was that like? Cause I hate le- reading my own stuff live. I can't even imagine getting in front of a camera like that. So I went to, I went to school for theater and thought that I was going to be an actor someday. And by the time I graduated, it wanted nothing less in life than to be a performer. But there's still a little bit of me that gets, I, I like the butterflies that you get when, when sharing a new work in that way. I don't know. I feel like it gives me an opportunity to put the work out in the, in the form that I see and feel things. I'm a cinematographer. I like things to have music and sound effects to it. And so when I'm writing, a lot of times I'm thinking about that format. And I think it also gives me a little bit of leeway in my writing as I'm learning because I didn't go to school and study anything other than theater and then some like general stuff. So I don't have a background in writing. So it it gives me a little bit of freedom in the performance and the music and the sound effects to have that room to grow. Eventually, I'd love to write a novel. I just don't think I'm, I'm at that place yet where I can write a story with that much, you know, tracking of all the story elements and and building the world kind of like you're doing. Yeah, and um, one of the things that I had made a mental note about is I loved the level of reveal or lack thereof for the uh, central artistic element and in, in the, the actual image. I was like, how much is he going to reveal of, of what was made? And I think you hit the nail on you did it just right. So so that was that was I was impressed, man. And it reminds me a bit almost of like a Thomas Ligotti story. And I can't put my finger on why. But it it reminded me of Ligotti quite a bit. Oh, that's awesome. I was excited as the writer to not know what it was. Because even the drawer of the drawing doesn't know what it is. He just knows he can't look at it. And there was something about it being that evil that I think it seemed like the only solution to, you know, all the carnage that I wanted to have caused by it. Leaving it a mystery, leaving it up for the individual reader or perhaps listener, in the case of the video, to try to drum up what on earth it could be be is is was definitely what i would have done as far as like because i mean how can you really describe something 
that could possibly be as sinister as what someone's individual imagination might go, man, maybe this is what it is, or maybe it's this, you know, so well done. Thanks. Yeah, and I mentioned that inspiration for this came from Edgar Olvera. He does these horrid drawings that are just so fun to look at. But he had posted, and I think he was using someone else's audio on TikTok of another illustrator, but I I saw it on his, on Edgar's TikTok. But it was audio saying, like, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to draw something so uncomfortable that you couldn't look at it. I got Edgar to send me a custom piece that I have in my office and the three or four weeks waiting for it to come, I said I didn't want to know anything about it. I told him a little bit of the things that I enjoy about like ghosts and like haunted paintings and stuff. And I had those four weeks while I was writing this to visualize in my mind what I thought it could be. And that really is what led to the whole story. Yeah, just to go back, Josh, I always think whenever I hear your stories, I go, oh, I'd love to see this thing, you know, come to life and be like, uh, like almost like a Tales from the Crypt. But then I watch you perform it and I go, Actually, you know, this is this isn't too shabby either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'd, I'd love someday to turn them into little short films. I would never show the drawing in the film either. It would it would be the same thing. You'd get like a murky version on the back of the paper. Well, it was a great story and a great performance, Josh. I really appreciate you guys checking it out. So the big question for today is, of course, do you believe in curses or cursed objects? David, I'll give you a moment to think. Cody, I want to hear from you first. Absolutely. Knew it. I absolutely, you know, I'm a sports fan and, and my, you know, my favorite football team is the Cleveland Browns and they are absolutely cursed. And I uh, have been through so much pain and sorrow with them as a, as a fan that I definitely believe that not only the Browns, but all of their sporting teams and the city possibly of Cleveland completely cursed. So I, I definitely do believe in, in curses. Then I guess I have to ask, do you believe in breaking curses? And how uh, do you think there's a way for the Cleveland Browns to break their curse? We will see, okay? Now, there's a lot of hype going into the season with the Cleveland Browns. People are starting to predict them to win the, the possibly go to the Super Bowl, which they've never been to a Super Bowl before. So we'll see. If they do actually succeed, then curses could be reversed or taken off. We'll see, though. Well, folks, if you want to learn more about the Cleveland Browns, you can listen to Cody's new podcast coming out next week. Curse of Brown Town. I love it. <laughs> David, what about you? Do you believe in curses? You know, not in the supernatural sense, but Caitlin Karen, she, uh, what was it, the drowning girl? She had talked about how um, there's that, that uh, forest in Japan that's called the Suicide Forest, Ooh. right? And she goes into, in a fictitious way, but it's sort of an expository part of the book where she says that, yeah, I think, I think like a couple people had taken their own life there, but the moment that it was labeled the suicide forest, it then sort of, I, I don't know, like magnetized people to go and end their life there. And, and, and now it's something entirely different. So I think that we can, in a strict psychological sense, place something like you might call curses on landmarks especially so yeah it's the human mind is is uh the bottom of the ocean man yeah but it's also the key to everything i don't know if i've actually said it on this show i have another segment that i do for work where i do a mental health segment and i've told people on that show i I recently started therapy and i cannot believe how powerful the mind is to just learn and adapt and change. The key is always inside of you. You know, it sounds like so cheesy. So like the idea of the suicide forest, and if you walk into it and you believe that you're going to commit suicide, but if during that moment you're able to talk yourself down, you're the key to that. It's not that the forest is cursed and that you're going to kill yourself. It's whether or not you believe it. Yeah. 
So we talk about Annabelle all the time because, you know, the Conjuring movies are so popular. And I had an infatuation with Anna Lorraine Warren and trying to figure out what their deal was. If it were like some sort of demon possessed, I don't know if that actually counts as a curse, but it seems like a lot of the lessons from horror movies are also kind of similar. And David, you mentioned like the link to mental health and how the horror community seems to like that sort of mental journey. It seems like the answer a lot of times is good energy beats bad energy. Is that age old tale of if you clap your hands and believe Tinkerbell will come back to life? Yeah, and it's interesting because horror is actually a very moral genre. With the exception of Lovecraft, of course, is that's what makes him different, is that it is a maligned universe. But with that type of exception, that's what I've found interesting and, and fascinating about the horror crowd is the underlining optimism that usually is embedded in horror work. I just love the answers you guys both gave to this question about curses. I also put out this question last week on the app Hi-Ho, and here's what listeners of the show had to say. Josh, my dude, it's Joe Dove from the This Dungeon podcast really cool story. I work in the shoe business and I used to work for a company called Nine West. There was a designer that they let go who designed these beautiful shoes, outrageous lines, ties that you could never imagine would tie together, heel dimensions that just were not practical but beautiful to look at on paper. And he framed all of them and they used to be hanging in one of these offices. When he hung them up, he was let go. So they took all these frames down and this coordinator, she said, hey, you know, they're going to throw it out. I'm going to take one. So she took one and our department head decided, I'm gonna take the rest. Wouldn't you know, they were both let go. So these framed shoe design drawings made it to another executive's office. And sure enough, they terminated her contract early. So we said, you know what? These frames are cursed. These shoe drawings are just cursed. This guy, when they let him go, he must have put something in these and anybody that's grabbed them got some kind of bad mojo on them. So what we did, was we discarded them. And sure enough, somebody grabbed one of them out of the garbage and decided to take them with him. And ultimately he was let go. Very crazy. And of course, I have to mention that, of course I believe in curses because we did a whole episode of the Dis Dungeon podcast together talking about Music Curses to the 32 Club, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Friends of Josh, if you want to hear Josh in a different realm, come down to the dark dungeon where we talk about music. And we put Julian onto The Who, I was put onto a Led Zeppelin album I never heard of, and Josh took part in our 32 Club Cursed Musicians that passed on at 32 discussion. It was great, and thanks again, buddy. Legend of the Cursed Shoe Drawings. <laughs> that story is so bizarre that it could only be true. Thank you for sharing that. That's pretty wild. I wonder if he hexed them or if they just picked up the bad energy or if it's just a coincidence. All right, so I was talking with my current boss and I brought up the cursed shoe paintings. And he was saying those paintings were cursed because the guy who drew them was super upset about the situation with the brand that he was working on and how it all ended. So we are going out on a limb that they were cursed. I also spoke with the model and she reminded me about a couple other people that got a little bad mojo from those said paintings. Because when we threw them out one last time, some of the other coordinators grabbed them and one of the designers grabbed them. And oof, that one was rough. She lost something very important to her right after she took that painting. And I actually became friends with her later on. So I reached out and I said, hey, do you still have that painting of the shoe that, you know, Billy will just say, Drew? And she said to me, oh, absolutely not. 
I had a huge flood in my apartment and the painting came off the wall, fell into the puddle because she lived in a basement apartment with her husband. Basically the whole thing got ruined and she said that when she moved, she got this opportunity. Now she's VP of another company. So those paintings were totally cursed. And I brought it up. I said, you know, we had this theory that the paintings were cursed before I could even finish. And she was like, yeah, I started to feel that way because of all the series of bad things that happened right after I grabbed that one. And I tend to agree. Ooh, spooky. Hey Josh, awesome questions. I love hearing the responses. That shoe drawing story was crazy. I guess I don't usually think about curses, but I definitely believe in energy. So you can give out negative energy and I guess that would be a curse because I do have Mati, the Greek evil eyes. I do have Mati symbols in my home and I do have other protection symbols or things like that. For example, a lot of people use sweet grass like sage to clear the negative energy and then braids of sweet grass hanging to bring the good energy back in and I do smudge and I do have sweet grass. I'm going to go positive again like I did on the Friday the 13th. Like I don't really think about the curse side of it all that often, but the fact that I have Mati and that I smudge and that I have sage and sweetgrass and other kind of like rituals to keep negative energy shielded from me means that I must believe in them on some level. What up, Josh? My dad jokes saying that our family is cursed because everything always winds up being more difficult than it has to be. You know, you go buy... You go buy milk and you bring it home and it turns out it's bad or you're trying to fix the TV or something and it won't work or something like that. My dad jokes about that. I personally don't necessarily believe in curses. I think that if you give enough attention to something that it can have power over you, I think sometimes we manifest curses in our lives. You know, other than the curse of man where we're born with sin nature, I don't necessarily believe in curses, but I'm fascinated by them. I just, I think that it's so interesting. The supernatural element behind curses. A certain object can cause so much devastation to somebody. I had a seminary professor talk about how one day he went to the local library and he checked out the Satanist Bible because he wanted to read it for himself so that he could better understand. And just having it in his home, he felt uneasy. And he, you know, so many things went wrong and he finally had to get rid of it. He took it back to the library and he said, listen, I wasn't going to destroy this because it's not my property and that would be wrong, but you guys need to burn this. Uh, So like I said, I think that if you give something enough attention, it can have power over you. And I think sometimes that we manifest things in our own lives that aren't necessarily real, but to us it's real. Thank you so much to everyone who answered this week. If you want to contribute your voice to the show, download the HiHo app for free from the App Store, and you can find Haunting Season on there, where I post weekly questions that you can respond to with audio and video, and we'll work your voice into the next episode. David, thanks so much for coming on again. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap things up with the end credits here? Well, I I could probably talk 30 seconds about Scrolls of Sin a little, because we talked about some psychology and some escapism, but one of the big themes, or the things I wanted to explore in the Scrolls of Sin, which kind of revealed itself in process, was the concept of family. You know, I'm not necessarily someone who goes, okay, I want this story to be about this theme. I I, I tend to kind of just sort of obey the muse for a little bit, and themes kind of emerge around the second draft. Then you really kind of focus on them from there on out. I was, I wouldn't say surprised that family came up in my writing, but I was surprised at the extent 
at the, the relationships of parents to children, of siblings, things like sibling rivalry, uh, the darker sides, but then also love and sacrifice. One of the reasons that I love horror fantasy and have made a point to make a contribution, you know, for, for, good, for good or for ill, is I love that you can take such a dark, morbid, phantasmic setting, but impregnate in it these very, very tender aspects of, of the human condition, you know, love and love lost. And that is something that I really, really swung for the fence for in uh, Scrolls of Sin. So your listeners out there who uh, find that interesting, they could they can definitely pick up the Scrolls of Sin right now on paperback and ebook format on Amazon Worldwide, any, any Amazon platform. Yeah, that's great. And the Kindle version is just under 10 bucks. So it's about the same as a rent in a movie or and the Kindle version actually has color interior. The paperback is the uh, black and white photos, right. so which both come out cool, by the way. I'm happy with either. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think family is such a, um, oh, man, it, it's like, it's not untouchable, but it's like something we t- tend to avoid, I think, a lot of times is the family construct. It's, it's almost like politics and money. Like, you don't really want to talk about it too much around other people. So when it comes up in writing and you feel seen, maybe someone you lost or maybe because of, like, anxiety that you have built in from your childhood or if you had abuse in your family all of these themes come up in various different forms in in horror novels and i just think it's so helpful to talk about because we often don't talk to each other enough about serious stuff like that it's not necessarily meant to be cathartic but damn if it doesn't end up being (laughs) cathartic (laughs) my writing is therapy for myself i i get so much out of it that even by the time i'm posting it i'm like i've already gotten it i've already gotten what i need out of it Well, thank you so much, David. Guys, thanks again for having me on. Thank you, David. Listeners, stay tuned at the end of the credits for how you can get more involved in Haunting Season. Haunting Season was created by me, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and is a joint production of Believe Limited and Matt Gielen. Special thanks to our sponsors, Autocrit and Memento Mori Los Angeles, and of course, our very special guest today, David Rose, author of the new collection of stories, The Scrolls of Sin, which is available on Kindle for just under 10 bucks. Haunting Season is executive produced by Patrick James Lynch and Ryan and Matt Gielen. This episode's story was written, directed, and performed by Joshua Sterling Bragg and edited by Colby Crow. The story itself was originally shared on Sapphire Sandalo's YouTube page. She tells incredible scary stories. You have to check her out. Again, link down below. Today's podcast was co-hosted by Cody Dugan and edited by Drama Del Rosario, featuring music made exclusively for the show by North Innsbruck. Creative support comes from Cody Dugan, Jessica Richmond, Mel Forrest, and my wife, Courtney Barber. If you love our show, please leave a review. You can find show updates on Instagram, daily movie reviews, and horror talk on TikTok, and you can join the conversation yourself by getting involved on HiHo, where I post weekly questions that you can respond to with video and audio that we will work into the one big question segment at the end of every episode. That's it for our show today. And remember, we're more likely to survive if we stick together. So I hope to see you next time. Bye, friends. Bye.